Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Sunset Boulevard, starring William Holden, Gloria Swanson, Eric von Stroheim, and Nancy Olson. Written by Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder, and D.M. Marshman Jr., and directed by Billy Wilder. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to continue on with our, and the Oscar goes to, or maybe goes to another film cask. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here we're still in the year 1950. Last week we did the perennial winner, All About Eve. And here we're going to talk about another film, also from 1950, Sunset Boulevard, Directed by one of our favorites, Billy Wilder. But maybe the film that maybe should have taken home the prize at the end of the day. Maybe that's what we'll get to at the end of this episode. Yeah, uh, you're being a lot more coy about it than I am. <laughs> I'm just going to come out and say, yes, this mm-hmm. should have taken. But that's the that's the fun, and that's why we're doing this one. Yeah. Uh, doing this cask also. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one. I hadn't seen this movie in... Uh, in quite a few years so this is good and time to talk about film noir a little bit again talk about billy wilder i mean you and i were shocked that really this is only wilder two that we've done we've never done anything with william holden Mm. i mean like we're really checking off a lot of boxes with this episode so i I can't i can't wait to talk about it it's going to be a good show there's a lot to talk about here excellent so today some more wild turkey 101 kentucky uh straight bourbon we had some of this last week Mm. that is so good it's a little harsh at the beginning right yeah and then it kind of settles in, mellows out. You get like really interesting kind of caramel, smoky mm-hmm. flavors with that one. Really heavy on the caramel. I've definitely picked that up. Oh, yeah. yeah, smoke, yeah. But not like cigarette smoke or like cigar smoke. It's just like kind of like a smoky smoker, thing. Like, like barbecue from, smoker. Like from a fire or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, there you go. Hickory. Yeah, I get a lot of hickory in there too. Uh, yeah, that I just, I think a campfire a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. you know... If you were to inhale the campfire smoke out of camp, this is what it would, this is what it would taste like. <laughs> Alrighty, let's get started with our flight question. Alrighty, so watching this film this week, uh, this is a great rewatch, by the way. Um, uh, had to rent it; it's not really available on any streaming services. Uh, I'd love to see Criterion put out a release of this, like a remaster of this. I bet it would look great. Um, but I was just kind of in awe of the of the black and white of this particular film and the shadows. Once we get to Norma Desmond's Xanadu, right? It's almost like a horror film. It's like very encased in shadows. I thought of Universal Monsters a lot with with that. And I was like, this film could only be black and white, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Just how, you know, stark and dark and shadowy everything's supposed to look. So recently, there's been a few films that have kind of toyed around with this idea, releasing an alternative cut in black and white. Uh, The Mist has a black and white option. Mad Max Chrome Edition, uh, mm. Fury Road, you can do that in black and white. And uh, I think Logan Noir, you can watch that in black and white. So my question to you is, what's a color film that you think, if they just totally stripped out all the color and went classic black and white, like Sunset Boulevard, 
Uh, what are the three best that you think might look really good? Three, three, two, two, one, one. Sure. I guess not in any particular order for me, but number three is going to surprise you because you know I don't like this film. Mm. The Breakfast Club. Mm, interesting. I think one of the key components of that film is the genres or cliques that these groups come from and the stripping of those down to be vulnerable enough to be real with your peers and then what that gives them. If you buy into the breakfast club thematically, that's what you have to buy into. It's what the title of the film is. It's the club, the new little click that they form. I want them to show up in color and, and in a reverse Pleasantville kind of way, I want them when they break themselves down to bare minimum or brass tacks, lose the color. Yeah. And then when we walk out, I don't know if you want to go to sepia or something like that, but we've created something together. Yeah. As we're playing simple minds. <laughs> As yeah. we're leaving the, the Don't soul. you forget about that movie. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there's, there's a couple moments in there where I guess they bear their sins. They tell the tale of woe that's led them to the sad place in life. And as meaningful as that should be, it's never been for me, partly because I've worked with high school kids for a long time and they're never like that. Yeah. Hollywood's depiction of high school kids is atrocious. Always off, right. Except in Heather's. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> super off. Yeah, super off. But um, I think that might make it at least a more interesting watch if the color was manipulated by Hughes in a way to express character and emotion. Devolvement. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I, I think that'd be pretty interesting. Yeah. You don't love that movie either, do you? I, I, I don't mind it, but I'm not popping that on every year, right? No, I mean, yeah. every once in a while, I'll get like a, hang, a John Hughes kind of like hangering, and I'll, maybe I'll throw that one on. Uh, but it's it's lower tier, tier Hughes for me. Go listen to Home Alone. We talked all about like where we kind of thought about him and ranked his, some of his films. Mm-hmm. Number three for me was the first film I thought about when I uh, heard this ranking, and it was uh, Prisoners. Mm-hmm. Denny Villeneuve's uh, kidnapping thriller uh epic with Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman. We did an episode on that many years ago, but imagine just stripping all the color away from that movie. It'd be even more depressing than it already is. Right. Yeah. yeah. And rainy and wet. And then just those wet streets in that suburban neighborhood would just glisten with that, like just black and white photography already shot really well by Roger Deakins. Right. Mm -hmm. But think of that scene there at the end when Gyllenhaal's listening and he thinks he hears a whistle, Mm -hmm. like it's already snowy and just cold and just stark. Mm -hmm. I think that would, that film would look really good in black and white. I agree with you. That would look good in black and white. Okay. You don't need the color. Fall plays a role in that. Like Mm -hmm. you said, make it damp and cold, but black and white also does that. Yeah. Good choice. I like that one a lot. Good Mm -hmm. job. Number two. I'm going to go with Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. I think the West plays really well in black and white. Maybe that's just because we grew up watching so many black and white Westerns. And that is a modern day Western, if you will. Bank robbers included. Uh, That movie doesn't work with anything having to do with the color or the aesthetic on the screen. It's about the relationship between Bonnie and Clyde and the relationship with Bonnie and Blanche and, and Buck. Uh, Character pieces, I think, play better than spectacle-type films with black and white versus color, duh. Mm -hmm. And I think because it's so gray, I'm sorry, so brown anyway, taking that and making it black and white wouldn't take away from the stark West Texas, there's no money, Great Depression, what are we going to do, there's no money element. And I think it maybe dries the film out a little bit more and makes it feel even a little bit more like I need something to drink. Cause I am parched. Sure. Yeah. 
That's a good choice. We haven't talked much about Bonnie and Clyde. Not in a long time, yeah. Yeah. Might have to flirt with that one here Mm -hmm. at some point in the future. Because there's so much to talk about in in that particular film. And, you know, you have Gene Hackman and Estelle Parsons running around in that that thing, too. But Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway are really good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most popular Halloween costume cop. Couple costume pairing of all time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, even the new Halloween. Remember, mm-hmm. they did. The, it was the gender swapped uh, yeah. Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Those two characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. Great choice, Thank uh, you. Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. Did you ever see the like? It was the one with like Emil Hirsch and Jennifer Goodwin. I mm-hmm. think. Did yeah. you ever, was it any good? No, no. Again, that's one that we didn't need remade. Yeah. So I think it was like a TV miniseries or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get around to that one. No, good choice. You save your time. Number Num- two. Number two for me, mm-hmm. uh, from Robert Eggers, and he did dabble in some black and white with his second film, but I think his first film might even look better, and that's The Witch. Uh, mm. Got Anya Taylor-Joy in, in that one, but another just kind of just evaporated, cold, sterile environment that has next to no color other than sepia. Uh, yeah, make that make that one black and white, and I think it, the horror would even come out of that even more, especially it would kind of lean into the, the hammer horror films a little bit. Uh, I think that movie is really great. It's I think it's really frightening, and it, it's 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 a good non like jump scare horror film. Um, but give me some black and white. It, it might even get it more of like kind of a classic feel, mm. like of those like British horror films. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that was my number two. He's flirting around. Uh, I I don't know if they're filming it yet, but I I know it's cast. He's doing a Nosferatu adaptation with Bill Skarsgård and Lily Rose Depp. And that, that's kind of got to be black and white, right? I mean, you think you would think. And I bring up Nosferatu too because I also this week I revisited Werner Herzog's '79 version of Nosferatu, which is really good, by the way. Uh, but that one's in color, and they're what's holding that back from being a near top shelf masterpiece. Is I kind of wish that movie was in color too. But that film has a lot of atmosphere. It, it, was, it was that was a really good rewatch as well. I haven't watched that in ages. I should like not even in my adult life. Yeah. I probably should go back and watch that. Yeah, check, yeah, check, check that one out again. So yeah, Robert Eggers, The Witch, my number two. Good choice. Thank you. Number three or number one, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'll go with real traditional film noir here. I want L.A. Confidential or Black and White. Okay. It doesn't need to be in color. The Black Dahlia didn't slip <laughs> slip in there. That movie needs to be put out to pasture, yeah. not in black and white. <laughs> no, L.A. Confidential is everything that I think modern screenplay noir writing should look like it doesn't need any of the color that it has on there because what I think you get with noir in black and white is plenty of gray feeling with the character's morality that's offset by the discoloration of their choices. Um, and that movie's filled with it. Yeah. Guy Pierce, Russell Crowe, Danny DeVito, um, David Stratherin, Kim Basinger. Kim Basinger, Veronica Lake, mm-hmm. uh, all of it. It's a really compromised lot of players in that film. And because it's 19 kind of 50 Hollywood, yeah. I think that part of stylistically Back to the Future excluded, mm. cop stylistically looks kind of weak. Cars look great then, but I think the attire looks weak. Yeah. Um, so you don't need that. And so, yeah, I just want to see that movie done in black and white. Awesome. Would you consider that the last, like, maybe yes. great traditional yes. film noir? Yes. Like, not like neo-noir, but like... There might be some stuff off the beaten path that we've never seen. Like, I can't imagine that that 
no one made any of those, but um, yeah, I, that's the last time anybody, I think really gave it a budget in a, a well, that's the last successful time. Sure. Yeah. Brian Singer finished that off for us really good. With, no, Brian De Palma. I mean, Brian De Palma. <laughs> Brian Singer would have finished it off too. Brian De Palma finished that off with the Black Dahlia, <laughs> yeah, exactly. which I think is a comparable cast oh, on paper. at that time. On paper, that that's, that's a winner. I think the problem with that film, though, put that on a tangent here right away. Do it. 12 do minutes it. in. Do it. 30 minutes in. They took a case that's never been solved. Mm-hmm. And tried to give rhyme or reason to it. Yeah. Now you don't need rhyme or reason noir and people show up at the middle of the third act that were the key piece. And, but this doesn't even do that. Yeah. It just sort of highlighted the black Dahlia murders with semi at best interesting love triangles and characters. And as much as I can like Aaron Eckhart from time to time, he is atrocious in that <laughs> film. He's, he's terrible in that film. Uh, no, I, I totally agree with you. It would be, uh, an interesting cask in the future would be like top, like most disappointing films, mm. like things you had been looking forward to for, since you heard about it or for a long time. And it just did not live up to, I got a ton of those movies. <laughs> uh, speaking of LA confidential real quick, side tangent, side tab, open up, mm. uh, Curtis Hansen, right? He's the writer director of that. He's got a movie on Peacock from 1982 that it just doesn't compute in my brain. It's called Losing It. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Starring Tom Cruise, Jack Earl Haley, uh, Dean, uh, not a, is it, I think John Stockwell. This is the, the friend from Christine. And it's like a trip, them going down to Tijuana to go lose their virginity. And they pick up Shelley Long in tow, who like is a, uh, Kind of in a tift with it, like her husband, so they're taking down her down there to get divorced as well. It's a wacky movie, like it's just like 1982, like Porky's sex comedy with those guys. Like I just I see Tom Cruise in there, I'm like this just like doesn't make sense at all. I've never seen that. Yeah, I does one of them bag Shelley Long? Uh, I, I haven't finished the movie, but um, to this point, no. I think it was maybe Curtis Hansen's maybe first or second movie, really early on in his career. Interesting. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Number one for me, uh, classic action adventure. Uh, and if we're really taking from what it was derived from, I think this would look really great in black and white. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. Uh, based on those uh, serials, uh, cliffhanger serials of the Flash Gordon, uh, Dick Tracy days, you know, Raiders is just pulled right from that. Um, and yeah, Desert will look great in black and white. All of those chase sequences. Um, I think it would give it a, a really cool vintage look if they ever leaned into that. And you know what the great part about this question is, is we could essentially watch them all in black and white. You just got to turn the color on your TV all the way to zero. And we can essentially create our own black and white it's true. Uh, thing. So that's my number one. Uh, I love those original serials. Uh, a few months back, I, I was dabbling into, they did a Captain America one in like 1941. But it's really bizarre. But he, he looks... And acts like the Captain America we all know, right? With the Star Spangled Suit. He doesn't have a shield, but he has a gun. So he's shooting people and fisticuffs. But it ain't Steve Rogers. They created a whole new character, and his name is Grant Gardner, District <laughs> Attorney. Oh, boy. Who assumes the mantle of Captain America. Dun, dun, dun. But I do have to say, for like how low budget those were, like the fight, the fight sequences in that Captain America serial are incredible. They're so good. And it's just two stunt guys just pummeling the hell out of each other. That's good. That's a good choice. Yeah. Um, I want to pitch something to you and tell me if this flies or not. Okay. What about Flash Gordon? 
1980s mm-hmm. Flash Gordon? Uh, ah, yeah, Flash. Yeah. What about it? He's a miracle. And so black too and black white. and white. Oh, absolutely. I think so too. Yeah. I mean, that's a colorful, colorful, um, vibrant film. Yeah. But I don't know if it needs to be. Yeah, exactly. That's what I kind of thought too with like Mad Max Fury Road is so, the mm-hmm. color palette Stark. it uses is... Stark. Stark it's, brown. Yeah, deserts, but also they have the blues and there's a lot of vibrancy in there. So when they strip the color out of that, it still works really well. So I don't know, maybe it's more of a testament to the filmmaking and the story than it is about the visual in that regard. But I'm yeah. with you on The Flash. I think that could be cool. That would be cool. That'd be a fun one to do like in some B um, science fiction cast, B movies, B science fiction films cast. 80s B sci-fi. There's a lot of that. Yeah. That, that would be pretty good. Excellent. Great choices. You too. I'm going to check out some of yours and just take the color uh, level all the way down to zero. Mm. But let's talk about the true black and white film uh, at hand and our review breakdown is Sunset Boulevard. You'll get it over your radio and see it on television because an old time star is involved. One of the biggest. But before you hear it all distorted and blown out of proportion, before those Hollywood columnists get their hands on it, maybe you'd like to hear the facts, the whole truth. If so, you've come to the right party. You see, the body of a young man was found floating in the pool of her mansion, with two shots in his back and one in his stomach. Nobody important, really. Just a movie writer with a couple of B pictures to his credit. The poor dope. He always wanted a pool. (laughs) Well, in the end, he got himself a pool. Only the price turned out to be a little high. Let's go back about six months and find the day when it all started. It's a pretty great opening to this little film here. Uh, 1950s, Sunset Boulevard. So Wilder had already done Double Indemnity six years prior, right? Uh, Here he comes trying to hand it some more noir. And we get it with classic voiceover. I mean, when I think noir, I think you just like someone leading us down the path through their voice, trying to set the stage, right? And I like that it's, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek here that he's uh, narrating this dead guy that's in this pool, but we kind of don't know just yet, but we're able to kind of piece it together. This is him. <laughs> it's him. And so it's that's a little suspension of disbelief, right? The dead man narrating his own death and how he got to that particular stage yeah. narrating from heaven or hell purgatory wherever wherever william holden's ending up right mm. <laughs> he's going somewhere uh I, I think it's a very inventive way to do the movie uh but it has those classic traditional noir vibes what, what, what do you think of this little the man in the pool i mean it's it's iconic how can you not love that yeah how did this guy and the way it's shot too underneath his body eyes open floating in the pool dead man's foot looking at him looking at you but that's lifeless how can you not have interest with that opening yeah and then with the lead-in the tease that he gives you classic hollywood actress and the man struggling to find his way in hollywood Mm -hmm. i I don't know how you can't be intrigued it's a terrific opening and i might argue maybe the best part of the film because really okay you know you set the stage for the viewer with what you open on the main character Arguable if that's going to be Holden or Swanson, but you know mm-hmm. we can debate that. Yeah. Uh, and the street, right? Well, like th- establishing this iconic street, Sunset Boulevard. Okay, so yeah, the title, Sunset, mm-hmm. Twilight, yeah. it's going down, mm-hmm. an end. 
whose end, his or hers? Both. And how long is the street then? Because his street seems to be a little shorter than hers, right? Yeah. Her street seems to be a long, winding sunset boulevard. Yeah. yeah it's a great opening. Great. Yeah. No, it's uh, really, I, I really like it. And then he goes right into that and like, let's go back six months prior. You know, can I stop you for one second? Yeah. We talk a lot about the way Hitchcock ends films and sometimes how he struggles to end films. Sure. You know who doesn't struggle to start films? Yeah, Billy Wilder. Not even, right? I mean, yeah. he... You open up, and whether it's some like It Hot or The Apartment mm-hmm. or Ace in the Hole yeah. or this film, and we could go on and on and on. The Apartment, yeah, I mean, uh, Lost Weekend. Yeah. You start with a film that lays out a tone, and he delivers that through all the time, and he's really excellent at piquing your interest and then letting it cool down and then building it back up. And then if you start that big, paying it off with something larger at the end, and he never... Well, I haven't seen every single movie Billy Wilder's done. Yeah. He he never misses. Mm-hmm. He's so underrated, Jesse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, just all the ones you listed, I think, are just, they're all incredible films, right? Uh, I think it's just, you know, uh, mastery of, of the story, too. Mm-hmm. I think him having a hand in writing it, I think, you know, helps him uh, lay the pieces and set the stage. And he just knows how to get through it so effortlessly. And think of the beginning of Double Indemnity, which is we get in super late with that, right? At the mm-hmm. very end of that thing with Fred McMurray coming in all shot up. Limping, blood yeah. on his lapel. And then turns on his little tape recorder and tells the story of the, of the film. It's kind of a little similar, mm-hmm. but with, I think, a much more provocative question of who's the dead man and how did he get there? Mm-hmm. And then the road we traveled to get there, I think, is just as interesting, right? Yeah. So Joe Gillis, William Holden. Uh, and we haven't talked a lot about William Holden because we haven't really done, we haven't done Network, we haven't done The Lost, uh, or the Lost, the Lost Bunch. They are a bit lost, right? Yeah. The Wild oh, Bunch. Uh, I know William Holden also as the Gregory Peck uh, insert for Damien, the Omen 2. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think he's a pretty great presence on screen. Like, he's... He, he kind of has leading man good looks, but he kind of has this, like, Joel McRae kind of, like, working man sensibility. Yeah. And he had just come back from the war, too, uh, with, uh, you know, J- uh, Stewart. J- J- Jimmy Stewart, and he he had done his tour of duty. So he was just kind of settling in back into Hollywood and really trying to get back at it. Uh, I think he's he's really good at this, and I, I love his profession. Struggling screenwriter. <laughs> Note about that a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And... Uh, kind of making his way in B pictures, like just probably little sci-fi B things. He probably did a little script doctoring on that Captain America serial I was watching. Mm-hmm. But he's really struggling, right? He's living in some rinky-dink apartment. The The debt creditors are hot on his tail. Uh, for $300, which, you know, probably today is probably a couple thousand, right? Yeah. But he doesn't even have that Mm-mm. to get his car. And they're coming to repo it, right? Yeah. And he's just like, I got to get a gig. I got to get a job. And this is where I think both of the films from All About Eve and this one, you know, there's a lot of name dropping of Daryl Zanuck in uh, All About Eve. Eve, And he was the producer of that film. So Mm -hmm. that's an easy name drop. This film gets to benefit from actually being able to go shoot on the Paramount backlot as part of the story and kind of have that whole vibe as it's a Paramount film, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I really like all this stuff on the back lot and trying to negotiate a deal. And I, lo- I love the, uh, what, what's what's the, the woman's name the that comes in and tells him his script's trash? Oh, oh, oh. I got it real quick. Betty. There you go. 
Yeah, he's just trying to like, is you got any work for me? Any all all script doctor, whatever you got? Uh, and he's like, sorry, Joe, I got nothing. And then his reader comes in and says, yeah, don't bother with this screenplay. It's pretty terrible. Uh, and she's like, yeah, you might want to meet the writer of that screenplay standing right behind you. So she's immediately like awkward. And this is something I always forget about this movie. Of course, I'm going to remember Norma Desmond and everything that's about to go down at this house. But I forget this little interesting love story between, or love triangle, right, of between Norma, Betty, and Joe. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's really interesting. And it's it's a foot still in this screenwriting world that he wants to coexist in um, that kind of keeps him leveled. And it's a look, maybe I would maybe want to help her write her story or she can just take my idea. And as that starts to bloom and, and blossom throughout the, the story, it gets more convoluted with his current relationship. Right. Yeah. What do you, what do you think of Joe and his profession? I mean, for 1950, I mean, this is, I think this is pretty interesting, especially if we're telling a story about Hollywood. Hollywood loves to tell stories about itself and it's always Oscar. Boy, don't they? <laughs> did you know that? You've been through that before? Sure, yeah. <laughs> Both this week and last week did that. Yeah. What I think this week really succeeds in is what roles the males play in this very thematic approach to the agedness and therein so the relevancy of women in a cutthroat industry where your beauty is your only credit card. And there's a max to that. And it's pretty close to tapped out by the time you hit like 30. So both of these films, whether it's Norma or Eve are not Eve. Um, Davis. Margo. Uh, thank you. Margo Channing. Yeah, yeah. Both are in the same space. Norma's a little bit more has bendy than Margot has, but it's coming. Like the sun is setting on both of these two careers. The difference in this is where Eve is a Davis vehicle, and this is also a Swanson vehicle. Mm -hmm. Swanson is met by a capable male protag, scare quotes around protag, mm -hmm. whereas in Eve, I think Davis devours most of the men opposite her in that film because it's not their vehicle. This movie recognizes if we play with agedness and love triangles and have a capable, even if it's Joel McRae boy next door, almost handsome. Yeah. William Holden. Almost handsome. Right. Yeah. And that's the name of a movie by, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, almost famous guy. Oh, camera crow. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Struggling this morning. <laughs> Almost, almost handsome. That's his own autobiography. <laughs> um, you get a more rounded story. And so what that allows is instead of Channing to also devour Eve, because she's, I mean, even though Eve is, is calculated, she's a much, much more talented actress in real life. And Swanson's also talented. But Holden's able to match her a bit and I think what that does is it creates more believable conflict angles other than let's just watch Davis essentially kind of act like an old bitty. Holden's really good because he gets to play like super annoyed most of this movie, which is just like, what do you mean there's no guests coming to this party? Oh my God. You like, it's just like, you could just like, just feel the steam just like coming out of his ears of just like, but we'll talk about why, because he's also comfortable, right? <laughs> 
he's in a comfortable space, so he doesn't want to just jet, but also he's just like, oh my gosh, this is such a weird situation. This woman's baddie. Uh, What do I do about this? Uh, Maybe I won't do anything because I kind of like living in this uh, palatial estate. It's just, I I just, I really, I I, I like that. So, uh, it's, it's a great profession. We like movies with interesting professions. And you know where that's where that's going to lead us uh, for our ultimate character arc, which we already are kind of putting the pieces together. This is the dead man in the pool, but here come the debt creditors, right? They give him. I love this chase scene too because 1940s uh, and 50s automobiles. I don't think we're ever really designed to do street racing the way films make them do. Yeah. So these cars can probably barely handle this chase as they're like going along. Take dude, that curve at 15 miles oh an hour. Oh my God. It's, it, it's so heavy. And you right. can just imagine that like, uh, uh, that non like auto, like power, power steering, like mm. just turning that wheel. <laughs> and he gets a blowout. And so he pulls into the first driveway he sees. Luckily the debt creditors, uh, the repo men, they just keep going. And so he's like, well, this is pretty, interesting house it looks abandoned it's all kind of disheveled pulls into the garage and he's like oh let me lay low let me go see if anyone's home maybe i call a tow truck whatever yeah. and there's this beautiful car in there right uh, like 1929 uh then i get the name of it over here but it's just it's pristine yeah. goes into this house it's this mansion like just it's it's xana it's, it's it's not quite to the level of uh xanadu or Manderlay uh, from Rebecca or, uh, Citizen Kane, but it's a pretty swanky little Hollywood mansion that I'm sure she bought really cheap, and now if she tries to sell it, it's going to fetch a pretty penny, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very quiet. It's almost like, you know, just completely void of any human contact, and he runs into the the butler, uh, Max, played by Eric von Stroheim, and he thinks he's here for the funeral arrangements, right? So go upstairs and you can make the funeral. So he's like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> and he goes upstairs and he runs into this woman. Talk about weird. Yeah, this, oh yeah, this, this is weird. This is very strange. Uh, runs into Norma Desmond, uh, played by Gloria Swanson. And she's kind of leaning over this like... Casket? A cas- a makeshift kind of bed casket of sorts. Bassinet? Yeah, it does look like a bassinet. It's fucking weird, man. Yeah, and you're like, oh, is this a child? Is this a spouse? Like, someone died here. And then the monkey hand drops. Uh, and you're like, and, and if you're William Holden, how do you not just, like, shriek and jet and just completely just get out of this place? <laughs> yeah, right. And no, he sticks around and starts asking questions. And when she pulls that veil, I for, totally forgot about this, Matt. She pulls that veil down on, or, on mm-hmm. the monkey. Oh, that, that that's horror, man. Mm-hmm. Okay, you ho- just hit it, didn't you? It's a damn horror show. It is. It's horror. <laughs> this mansion that he lives in is essentially a haunted house by a real-life specter. Mm-hmm. And all of her odd proclivities that seem to revolve around ready Death, whether that's death of a marriage, death of a career, death of a monkey, it all revolves around death. Yeah. How much will it be? I warn you, don't give me a fancy price just because I'm rich. Lady, you got the wrong man. I, I had some trouble with my car, a flat tire. I pulled into your garage until I could get a spare. I thought this was an empty house. It is not. Get out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you lost your friend. And I don't think red is the right color. Wait a minute, haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out, or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. 
Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. There it is. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Hmm. Uh-huh. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead. They're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths and out came talk. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk. That's where the popcorn business comes in. You buy yourself a bag and plug up your ears. Look at them in the front offices. The masterminds. They took the idols and smashed them. The Fairbankses, the Gilberts, the Valentinos. And who have we got now? Some nobodies. Don't blame me. I, I'm not an executive, just a writer. You are mm-hmm. writing words. Words, more words. Well, you've made a rope of words and strangled this business. <laughs> but there's a microphone right there to catch the last gurgles. And Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongue. Cool. She's pretty incredible in this movie, isn't she? Is, she? Yep. Yeah, I was really just completely... And here's going to be even the craziest part. So she was nominated for Best Actress. Betty Davis and Ann Bax were also nominated, and none of them won. Yeah, what? <laughs> I think it was the, the woman for, gosh, why can't I remember? The, the, Born Yesterday. Yeah, Born Yesterday. Yeah, she won. How did, how's, this, how's this woman not taking home the gold for, for this performance? I mean, she is just so unhinged, and she's like nails on a chalkboard. Like It's just like that classic Hollywood Catherine Hepburn pantameter of speaking, but it's all crazy. It's just like there's no vein of sanity left in this woman. It's, she's gone. This reclusive behavior of hers has just totally made her lose her mind. Mm. When you write dialogue, and I think you make it too metaphor heavy, it gets too cerebral for a lot of people to grasp. But the way she's talking about there's a microphone in there to catch the last gurgles, it doesn't quite get to like official figurative language speech metaphor. Yeah. But the red swollen tongues, like she talks about where she doesn't want color, but then celebrates the necessity of color in what she doesn't like. She doesn't like words, but she's intrigued because now she's coming to someone who's a master, quote unquote, of words. Mm-hmm. Well, she's a mess. Yeah. There's a lot of parallelism running in through her. And it stems from, like you said, a place where she at this is clearly unhinged. Question is, yeah. what is it? that keeps, in these early days, Joe Gillis from jamming? Why doesn't he run? It's the money, right? Yeah, it's just like, I will pay you 500 a week, which is more than enough to get my car not repossessed, right? Uh, to just kind of go over and give some notes on this very bad screenplay that you've been passion projecting uh, for the last 15 years, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it sounds like an easy gig, right? It's just, I just got to hang out here. I think where it gets really difficult for him is like, no, we're moving you into the house. And he's like, <laughs> like I don't want to live here. Um, no, we'll put you in the back. Oh, okay, that's all right. Uh, but I think it's an easy gig, right? I mean, if, you know, 500 equated to, let's just say that's $5,000 a week, like today, right? Mm-hmm. To just go over some notes, offer some things, help her switch it up. Yeah, that, I might take that. <laughs> Yeah, you can't blame him because he's yeah. up against it. So you can buy off the strangeness of the dead monkey. Yeah. You can also buy off, and tell me if you think I'm crazy, isn't there a bit of Dwight Fry's Renfield in her depiction of Norma Desmond? Oh, yeah. Words, words, words. Yeah. 
Is that her or is that Dwight Fry? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. She's back to the horror trope then mm -hmm. in this big deserted mansion that might as well be Carfax Abbey. Yeah. You're playing around in, I think, a space that this is the only noir that I know specifically really does tease the horror elements. Yeah. And then you look at Norma Desmond. She is horrific herself. Not a harpy. To angler to be harpy. Yeah. Witch. Witch. Succubus. Yeah. And you just see kind of in the same way that Noir works with the femme fatale, she seems to be able to buy off any piece of the protagonist's conscious or sixth sense that might warn you of some danger yeah. through sex. And this, she just flat out buys it off. Yeah. From the money that she made in an industry that has passed her by because they found a new way to make more money with talkies and colors. Yeah. She's just stuck in the middle of all of these conflicts and celebrating and getting crucified from all of them at the same time. And my God, how like you to your original question or statement. Yeah. How does she not win the Oscar? I know. I mean, Gangster Mall educating herself is also a great role in Born Yesterday, but not not this. She had to have influenced like Cruella Deville as well. Mm -hmm. Just that kind of like puppies, puppy, like just mm -hmm. like coming mm -hmm. in like mm -hmm. like like hell on wheels, right? She, yeah, it's it, it it's not a good situation that uh, Joe has found him in monetarily. It can be. It's better than getting passed over at the at Paramount uh, for every job. Uh, he left and right. So, yeah, let me look over this thing. It's this, you know, story about this Jewish princess, uh, Shalom. Um, and it just sounds, it just sounds so initially. Awful. He, and he's reading it. He's like, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah. Because she's not a writer, right? I mean, that became the blueprint for Yentl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, 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 yeah. So it's just, he's just biding his time, I think, until he just kind of has enough. Uh, but I think Joe buys from the beginning. They're like, there's no way. We're not going to make this movie. Like, No one's going to want to touch this thing. Right. Um, so I'll entertain this while I'm still getting paid. And we'll let you have your delusions of grandeur. And Meanwhile, me and Betty will be back at my studio <laughs> yeah. working on something that I really want to do. Yeah. Not yet, but soon, right? Right. It's just like that. That opportunity is going to present itself. But it just keeps getting strange. And, you know, they move him into the guest house and all his suits. And she goes and buys him new clothes and expensive things. And she wants to spend money on him. And then when his little villa gets rained down, he has to move into the big house. He's like, oh, gosh, I got to be here with it all the time now. Um, but it, she keeps him entertained. They have movie day every every other day. Of course, they're watching her films, right? Yeah. She'd sit very close to me. And she smelled of tube roses, which is not my favorite perfume, not by a long shot. Sometimes as we watched, she'd clutch my arm or my hand, forgetting she was my employer. Just becoming a fan, excited about that actress up there on the screen. I guess I don't have to tell you who the star was. <laughs> they were always her pictures. It's so self-indulgent. That's all she wanted to see. Like you hear a lot about actors that they don't they skip out on their own premieres after the red carpet because they don't like watching themselves on the screen. Yeah, here you have a woman so vain; it's all she wants to watch. Right. And watching a movie that her and Von Stroheim actually made together in the 1920s, right? Yeah. Still wonderful, isn't it? And no dialogue. We didn't need dialogue. We had faces. 
There just aren't any faces like that anymore. Maybe one, Garbo. Those idiot producers. Those imbeciles. Haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? I'll show them. I'll be up there again, so help me. Swanson, a silent film actress herself, has mm-hmm. a relationship with Stroheim at that era. Yeah. What Wilder also is, is a child of German Impressionist filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So they both have a, the, all these players, Holden excluded, yeah. have a callback to another time mm-hmm. that creates a level of believability the way that you play it, even in the sound you just did there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you gave a little, you know, 25 second um, breakdown there. There's no dialogue. <clears throat> You hear the reels rolling. You're yeah. watching them watch not a talkie in a talkie. Mm-hmm. They're creating an atmosphere where the industry that's dead, that celebrated the Norma Swansons and the Garbos, like she mentioned there, is not even on embers, not even on life support, like completely dormant now. Yeah. But that's how you create atmosphere in a film by making your contemporary fr- film a callback yeah. to those other ones with real people that had a career in that industry. I think that's the cool part. Yeah. So for everything that Eve wants to be with referential relevance in the industry, this movie has it in spades because they actually do it. Yeah. Betty Davis wasn't a starlet in silent films, Jesse. Yeah. And that's not to say that Swanson's better than Davis. That's not the corollary that I'm no, drawing here. Yeah. Stroheim and Swanson made several films that were work were silent films. Mm-hmm. And then as the industry moved on, the Swansons took a backseat or the Desmonds took a backseat to the yeah. Davises. Yeah. She, and I just think it's just a, a great way to put you in that moment. It's authentic. It's, it's but, it, there you go. Thank the you. The authenticity of the actors, the players and the story that they're trying to tell. And I think she had done some, like maybe some tell like, some Broadway and theater work up until like 1942, Gloria Swanson, and then just kind of called the quits That's and enough, didn't yeah. do anything until this film like brought her like out of it, right? Well, can I ask you a question? I feel like I should know this. Yeah. Weren't Swanson and Stroheim at one time a couple as well? Oh, I don't know. I yeah. think they were. That'd be I, interesting. I'm, I'm almost 100%. Mm, I'm, I'm fairly certain that they were. We'll find out that they are in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I'd be curious to to know that too. Von Stroheim is a very interesting figure to me. Uh, he made a film in the early twenties based on McTeague called Greed, which is yep. It's often called one of the great masterpieces that essentially not very many people have seen because it's kind of hard to find and it's also kind of lost at the same time. And remade a million other times too in other films. Yeah, I've seen the two hour cut which is all the existing footage. And I've seen the four hour cut, which has that footage with still photography to help flesh out the rest of the story. I mean, that thing was like nine, 12 hours at one point. Yeah. All of the problems, the magnificent Ambersons had, this had it even before that. Yeah. And kind of the, the issue that he ran into that kind of really made him a very bitter filmmaker was like, no one cared about film preservation back in the day. Cause I don't think people really cared about movies outside of entertainment back then, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was no like cataloging and historical significance of something that had only been around for 20 years, right? So they swept up all that celluloid and just threw it in the trash. And so there's no way we're going to see. And there's whole films that are just gone because gone. of that type of mentality. So mm. that it was always kind of a very tragic part of Von Stroheim, but then had a pretty great career as an actor and into the 30s and 40s. So 
I love his presence here as this just kind of this butler who just does her bidding. Uh, you kind of don't know like what his angle is and like he's just used to her way that she gets her attitudes, how she gets herself all worked up in a tizzy. Uh, he's almost not as not as horrific. Yeah. But back to the Dwight Fry and whether that's Fritz or actually Igor, he's almost like the Igor to her yeah. Dr. Frankenstein yeah. or whatever, Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. Doing the bidding. Yeah. Get the luggage, move them in. He's writing the fan letters we're, we're going to find mm, out, but man. not revealed to her until later, right? He's trying to keep some semblance of life alive in her. And so he's helped keeping the heartbeat going too, right? Mm-hmm. Of a career. Um, but mm. yeah, just so self-indulgent to just be like, every Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday night, I will go into my little theater living room and I'm going to watch myself. <laughs> like. I'm not going to watch new things coming out or I'm not going to watch other actors that I admire because I admire myself. And I'm, I think that's what makes her truly horrific is she truly believes that she's better than any actor that's ever come before. Right. Mm-hmm. And wants that opportunity to prove herself. So here they are. They're going to make it happen with Shalom. This is new thing. And she has, you know, card games every Wednesday night with her old silent cronies. I love this too. Uh, I don't know the other ones, but I know Buster Keaton, right? Yeah. Uh, and so this is just the meeting of the has-beens, right? The people that aren't making movies anymore so we can relish about old times, yeah. the old studio system, what it was like in the silent era. And it's just a regular, what do they call them? The waxworks? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. just They're just wax figurines up there. <laughs> Aged in woodworks? Yeah. Mm. Again, the same thing, right? Here it is. That same theme. Mm-hmm. Now you add some male players and you recognize it's maybe not just Swanson, but it's this whole industry that's just been left behind. And if not for the importance that they put on their own importance, maybe no one cares anymore. And as much as we can look down our noses and cluck our thick tons and suggest oh so very delicately (laughs) that that's unique to the Hollywood industry the truth is that's something that all of us have to deal with at some point. You just don't yeah. have it yeah. anymore. And usually it's because of age. Well, it's like, it's like athletics too, right? Yeah. I well, mean, okay. Yeah. There it, you go. Tom Brady's a little Norma Desmond. I, I, mm. I, I think. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. He's like afraid to give it up to not be relevant anymore. Right. Mm. I mean, and, to make Bruce Arians his max. And exactly. And so you see how youth supersedes the old and you just get kind of slowly filtered out sometimes sooner than you would like. But well, look, Jesse, yeah. I mean, you're far too young for this to happen, Yeah. but there's a day coming where you'll go through this too, but you know, we put a nice term around it. Yeah. So it's not so a better pill to swallow and that's retirement. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put a pension with it and give you retirement. But yeah, they're basically saying, look, we don't know how efficient you can be more because you're just getting on a little bit, or maybe you're too expensive for the efficiency you provide. So sure, yeah. out you go Yep. to what? Yeah. To what? Yeah. To, yeah. That's up to the person to figure out. Norma's mm-hmm. is, no, I'm not done yet. And I'm going to try and stick around as much as I possibly can. Right. And I think that's what just, oh man, just really makes my skin crawl in this film. I mean, it's like really awkward watching the two of them do this dance literally and then figuratively in that scene at New Year's. And it's just so uncomfortable. She just, like, can't take the hint that, okay, now she's starting to put the moves on Joe, right? Yeah, I love it. I'm into you. And let's 
have I'm a, into you. Let's have a relationship, right? And he's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't want that lady. Yikes. Turns her, just shoots her down. He doesn't equate it to an incomplete forward pass, but she's extreme, man. And she, she, she's like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll go upstairs. She slaps him, right? Mm-hmm. Goes upstairs and he's like, oh, I got to get out of this freaking hellhole, right? And so he goes to be with people of his age, right? Mm-hmm. Having kind of, I think, a fun looking New Year's Eve party. Everyone's dancing and drinking, and he runs into, uh, he runs into Betty again, and uh, uh, another uh, assistant director friend of his, Jack Webb, who I know from Dragnet, right? Yeah. And uh, I like that Betty's trying to be pretty apologetic. I'm sorry I was so harsh on your screenplay, but I did find something else tucked away in the corner that's actually kind of decent. And so then that's when they strike up their friendship relationship, right? She's younger. Yeah. It's not so off-putting, not so awkward. Definitely not off-putting, yeah. In the same industry, essentially, that Norma's in. So now you're getting Joe put in a tough spot because there's a lot of work that he and Betty are going to have to put in to make what Norma already has. The problem with what Norma already has is it comes with its own price, too, and that's putting with her weird neuroses and proclivities and all of the things that you and I laid out that would make her sympathetic except for the fact she's just so off-putting in this. It's hard to really sidle up to her, put your arm around her and say, Norma, it's going to be okay, because God only knows if you did that, what would happen? She's just, and it's a great performance by Swanson as Desmond. Yeah. It, this is Swanson killing it. Yeah. It's supposed to be off-putting. And it is, and, and she's great at it. Yeah. So think about that too, Jesse. Yeah. You have a very lavish career as a silent movie actress. One of the big, 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 big ones. Yeah. You get on in life to a place where either you're not relevant because you don't want to be or tired of the game or the, the studio system has nothing for you that you want to do or you're phased out in some manner. Yeah. You come back in this to play the awkward version of your own self. Yeah. It's why on occasion you get like Monroe and Misfits mm-hmm. and her in this because... That person needs to lean into a little of themselves, right? Oh my God. And it's this is pure method. This isn't yeah. created method. This is you are you yeah. in a really ugly state mm-hmm. show me yeah and man it takes a toll on you yeah 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 like that's, that's i'm glad we've drawn the corollaries to to horror because it is pretty horrific watching her operate and i just i just want to just tell her just like just norma would take the hint but th- there's no way right she would never relay that information into her synapses Mm-mm. that she's done washed up yeah. no one cares about her right up until the end when they're going to put her in the in, in, in the squad cars to the loony bin, probably. Uh, she still fully believes, right? Mm-hmm. She thinks she's making a movie at the end of the movie. <laughs> I'm ready for my close-up, oh, Mr. God, that's just Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. But yeah, this I think this is great. And then this is very strange because I love how Jack Webb tells, Hey, I told you you could stay at my place, but I didn't tell you you could take my girl. And then these two almost make out in the back room. Like, what's up with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't even know what they're talking about. It's almost like they're doing like Mad Libs, like wordplay about scenarios or I don't know if they're talking about a screenplay, but they're very flirtatiously like kind of doing this dance, right? Yeah. And then finally the phone frees up and he was like, Max, get my shit ready. I'm, and I'm going to bring it over here because I'm out of there. 
Sir uh, Norma, you might want to come back here. And she's like, uh, she uh, slit her wrist. <laughs> and then, bum, 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 bum. Yeah. And he's like, Jesus Christ. Norma. He's like, I was I, I was almost out, right? Yep. Almost got out of this crazy hellhole. Betty's waiting for me for dinner right now. Yeah. And so he goes back, and I think, to Joe's credit and to William Holden's performance, mm. goes in and sees how just pathetic she looks in this bed. Suicide attempt, post-suicide attempt. And he takes off that little slipper. And I think he feels sorry for her there. I think, and I think that's why he sticks around. It's just like, oh shit. I don't want, she's got a good heart. I don't want her to kill herself. So let me go through with this. So then they become lovers. (laughs) What? What? Yeah, they become lovers. Yeah. In a really clever way to show it on screen because not only is the Hayes Code right up your ass about what you can't show, but then. Watching that is going to be pretty tough on the old peepers. Yeah. So it's it's referenced or hinted at or alluded to without actually giving it to you, mm-hmm. which I think is all the more powerful in this film because, like you and I said, when it comes to horror, yeah, sometimes, most of the time, less is more. Oh, what you see is scarier than what you see. Yeah. And what you don't see is scarier than what you do see. Man, whoo, Jesse. Yeah, trying to compute how those two are having sex is just... Annie bar the door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> the monkey's guarding the door. Guarding the door, not having sex with. That's not that this is not that kind of show. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. We're in, we're in some pretty grim territory right now. <laughs> what? Yeah. Exactly. It's just like out of and then Can I ask you a question right now with what you just said? Do you yeah. remember the first time you saw this? Yeah, I think Were you like what in the hell afterwards? I was probably 20, 19. I was definitely in college. And you no, know, I'd always heard about Sunset Boulevard, right? I knew all the lines on the AFI list, so I was like, I got to see this movie. And I was like, man, this is this this is a wild ride. It's just like it's it's noir, but it's like it's like it's more a statement on like mental health than it is mm-hmm. like about Hollywood at right. the end of the day. Like, this woman's cuckoo. Uh, and then so we're gonna settle into the the next most awkward thing of this entire movie, <laughs> which is. Paramount's calling the house. Uh, they want to talk to Norma Desmond, but I'm only talking to Cecil B. DeMille. So she's playing like hardball. Yeah. Unbeknownst to her, they're only calling her for the car car in the garage. Yeah. They want to use it as a prop for one of their films. Oh, boy. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, exactly. So here we go. The whole crew, the whole family, this weird family, right? Yeah. Max, we're going to find out about him, too. And that just makes it even more complicated, right? Because what the hell's Max doing? Here we go up to the Paramount lot, the gates. They, no one wants to let her in. This young guy doesn't know who the hell Norma Desmond is. But then she meets, and this is what I really like about this scene. There are enough mainstays here on the lot. Extras, background, lighters, gaffers, key grips from the silent era mm-hmm. that know who Norma Desmond is. So the security guard lets her in. And I love the line she says, you tell him to be a little bit nicer. He wouldn't have a job if it weren't for me. I built this studio. <laughs> Yep. So here they go. They kind of essentially break into the, the Paramount lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sneaks onto the set, and they go up to DeMille and like, Norman Desmond's here to see you. And he's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Please, no. He's like, no. He's like, oh, she probably wants to talk about that god-awful script of hers. And then I okay, hear what I like. The real, actual Cecil B. DeMille, right? Yeah. We're getting the real people playing the real parts. I love Keaton, that. Keaton, DeMille, yeah. Matt Stroheim, Holden, I really, Swanson. I, I really like that. Yeah. <clears throat> He is sympathetic to her cause as well. I met her when she was 16, 17, whatever age he throws out there. And she was a firecracker. And, you know, she was a great actress and great personality. And I've seen hundreds of people 
you know, just totally slammed the door in her face, right? So he is even a little sympathetic to, we can't just throw her out of the lot, right? Yeah. So let's go talk to her and let's see her on her terms and see what she wants to do. And she's just like, we're, we're making this movie, Cecil. And he's just like, no. someone from Paramount's been calling me. And he's like, who's been calling you? So he goes and talks to that guy. I'll play the little clip here. And then this happens. And then this is just, it's so bad for her. But uh, it shows that there is a collective that know Norma Desmond. Now, why don't you just sit up here in my chair and make yourself comfortable? Hmm? Thank you. That's a girl. Yeah. I won't be a moment. Bring me a telephone and get me Gordon Cole. Right. Miss Desmond! Miss Desmond! It's me! It's Hogeye! Hello, Hogeye! Hogeye? Let's get a good look at you! Look, there's Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond! Norma Desmond! Why, I thought she was dead. How Dude. nice to Welcome home, Miss Desmond. You remember me, don't you? Oh, Miss Desmond. Hello. Hello, Professor. Oh, Mr. Wilcox, have you met Miss Desmond? Yes, a great pleasure. Oh, Gordon, this is C.B. DeMille. Have you been calling Norma Desmond? Yes, Mr. DeMille. It's that car of hers, an old Isada Fashini. Her chauffeur drove it in on the lot the other day. It looks just right for the Crosby picture. We want to rent it for a couple of weeks. Oh, I see. Well... Thank you very much. Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what she doesn't get, though, is the people that are calling back her name yeah. are, oh, my God, look at the freak show that just showed up. It's disbelief, not recognition or adoration. Yeah. It's, oh, my God, you're still here? I think yeah, I think it is shock. I, part of me wants to say there is a tiny bit of admiration there because I watched this scene three times. Mm. Uh, all the people that go, hey, it's Norma Desmond. I thought she was dead. They're all old fogies, man. Yeah. They're all like 60 plus, just like trying to make some semblance of a career as a background extra in the Cecil B. DeMille picture. I tried to, and I watched it because I was like, are there young people in there? Because then that would be kind of strange if they knew, because the whole thing is no one knows who this woman is. Yeah. No, they're all old people from the silent era that know her. Hog Eye up in the rafters, uh, all these old extras, and... Yeah, I think it's they're all like kind of just crowd her and everything. And DeMille's like, oh my God, this woman. Just enough to fuel her ego and her crazy a little yeah, bit more. Uh, just a little bit, just, just enough. And just enough to make us just cringe as the audience. It's just like, I, this is like, like cringe humor now. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting into pretty icky territory. Meanwhile, Von Stroheim and uh, uh, Gillis are sitting in the car and he's telling them, yeah, I used to. That used to be my office up there. Mm -hmm. We used to have had great wallpaper, and Norma had this great space, and we made a bunch of pictures on this lot. And look at me. I'm driving car now. Look at me now. And he notices Betty, right? And so this is the the reader's space here on the lot where all the scripts come through, and they, they read and make notes and send them back for feedback. And so, you know, he goes and talks to her for a little bit, and he was like, you know what? That idea that you like, Dark Window or whatever this thing was called, you can have it if you want. And he's trying to be amicable about her. And she's, she's just very unsure. I don't even know if I would know how to do this. Uh, 
well, what if we team up? And so then we start that working partnership, right? Mm-hmm. We'll write it together. And then there's a romantic interest there as well, too. Yeah. And then that's when Cecil B. the Mill gets her off the lot. And he was like, tell them, call Gordon, say, forget that car. If he wants a car, I'll go buy him eight cars. We, we're not bringing her back on the lot. We ain't dealing with that. We need her never to be here again. And then in maybe the most horrific scene of the entire film, may as well be out of eyes, out of eyes without a face. Uh, we get a great voiceover from Gillis that goes, Norma went through that next week. Norma went through beauty procedure after beauty procedure to get into tip top shape. And it looks like she's in a hospital. There's like machines beeping as they're like doing treatments to her face. They're putting a sack over her head to get, Bring out her pores? I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. But it, it looks like they're experimenting on her. Mm-hmm. Creating a monster. There you go. Again, but the Frankenstein. The Frankenstein aspect, yeah. Yeah, man, and it feels like that too. Icky. Ooh. Her claws and her nails and her eyebrows and the sack over her head, like you mentioned. All that from afar. Yeah. If you didn't know what this was, you'd be like, oh my gosh, what's going on in this horror film? Is this some Frankenstein ripoff? Yeah. But the truth is, that's her path to beauty. Wait, so then it poses another interesting question in this film in that for Hollywood is saying, is the price of beauty so horrific that we make monsters of those trying to achieve it? Sure. And the movie would seem to say yes. And many an actress in 1950 Hollywood probably also say yes, whether it's the bottle or the pills or surgery. Yeah, and the, you, the music industry is like that too. It's, sure. it's a go, go, go type of industry, especially if you're a touring group where your body just gives out on you. Yeah. So then you do, yeah, you seek out pills and other, you know, vices to just keep yourself going. I mean, mm-hmm. this same thing here. It's just, it's mm-hmm. vanity versus, you know, I mean. She, Age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I was really strict. I for, totally forgot about this little series of shots, right? of her beauty makeover, this montage. It's just, it's, it's ghastly. It just looks like she's in a hospital room. It's just, it's it's very horrific. And so she comes into the room with William Holden. She's like, don't look at me. <laughs> I don't want you to see me like this until it's com- I'm all repaired. <laughs> and so he waits for her to go to bed at nine because she's so worn out from all these procedures. And then he skips out to go for the late night writing sessions. And so him and Betty are developing this great rapport they have a lot in common. They're both struggling writers, so they're trying to kind of make it together. And, yeah, it's just bad news bears. It's just, you know, Max finds out about his late-night dealings. He's about to tell him the truth about his real lineage. <laughs> uh, and then it's interesting with Betty, too. I mean, they, they tour the lot to get a break, and, you know, we find out, like, she wanted to be an actress, but she wasn't pretty enough. So she got a nose job, and then they found out, oh, she's not a good actress. Right. It's <laughs> crazy. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll be a writer then, so. Oh, William Holden at this point. Joe Gillis has got to be looking around thinking, like, is there anyone normal left? Yeah, or is there, okay, so to be in Hollywood, you can't be too old. You can't be ugly. Uh, sane. You, you have to act. You have to be sane. <laughs> You got to check a lot of boxes to make it in the pictures, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially in this era. <laughs> it's rough, man. And and it was like sports back in the day because the studio's like a franchise. And they have you under contract and then they don't just don't renew the contract with you after you, after two years, right? Yeah. We're moving on to the new blood. Four pictures. 
it's sad too that Betty makes that admission. You know, I wasn't pretty enough, so I got my nose done so I would be. And then after my nose surgery, everybody told me that I couldn't act. So I can't go back and get my old nose. That's a bad shake. Man, tough beat there. She's, I guess, ahead of Norma, though, Jesse. What I mean by that is Mm -hmm. she didn't have to go through all of the things that Norma went through to eventually end up in irrelevancy anyway. Yeah. But is that better to just never be irrelevant than to wind up in irrelevancy? Yeah. At least you get to keep your face mostly because what Swanson Desmond has to go through in this film in order to just even reignite the embers on Shalom in some bit role. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, again, I like the honesty with which the industry is being portrayed in this film. Me and too. It is ugly. Yeah. And so uh, are most of its players, honestly. Exactly. And I guess that was a contentious piece when it did come out, right? It, there was a lot of like, Actors and directors being like, well, Wilder, like, you made us seem like crazy people. I think him and Louis B. Mayer really had it out. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of exchange of words and, you know, trying to bring up his Jewish heritage, right? Billy Mm -hmm. Wilder, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess just really calling him out on, like, the type of film he made. But I, I think Billy Wilder made an honest film about all the stuff he'd been seeing for the last 15 20 years of films he'd been making. So when you did the research on this, which movie in 49 came out first, this or Eve? Do you know? Let me look it up while you're going on. I can, I can, I can do it real quick. The reason I'm asking is I wonder if when, if this film predated Eve, did Hollywood look at what this movie said about itself and come up with the counter to this and present it the same story, but not in quite such a harsh way. Or it was this came out in August and that came out in October. So where's that? Probably not enough time to make you know. I doubt it. They, they would probably it was already made, right? Uh, At least in, yeah, pre-production. But hmm. no, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, if it one influences the other, uh, I'm gonna play wag this. the dog. You got to wag the dog. Yeah, exactly. You must understand. I discovered her when she was sixteen. I made her a star, and I cannot let her be destroyed. You made her a star? Yes. I directed all her early films. There were three young directors who showed promise in those days. D.W. Griffith, Cesar B. DeMille, and Max von Meiling. And she's turned you into a servant. It was I who asked to come back, humiliating as it may seem. I could have continued my career. Only I found everything unendurable after she had left me. You see, I was her first husband. <laughs> what? <laughs> so the three filmmakers, right? Uh, Cecil B. DeMille making big epics. Uh, D.W. Griffith making racist movies. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Max von Myroff. Essentially, Eric von Stroheim, right? Myself making these films with Norma Desmond. Uh, okay, my I was her first husband. Okay, so there have been multiple husbands. That's you wouldn't phrase it that way, right? We don't know what they probably skipped town or are dead. They're in the backyard with the monkey. <laughs> yeah. Well, why is he sticking around? What What is it for him that he feels so obligated? Other than what he just said. Because there's got to be something deeper there. 
to just stick around and be manservant? Is he comfortable with this arrangement? Is he afraid of the unknown of what's outside of that house? What's, what, what's your best guess? What he tells Joe in there is nothing about how talented she was. What he tells Joe is, I'm the one that found her. Mm-hmm. When my prize-winning find, my gold claim has gone dry, what does that say about me? Then I'm not even as relevant as she was on my best day because I'm behind the scenes and she's in front of the camera. When she goes, who's going to remember me? This is so sad. It's all of these people with these Hail Mary dying last wishes to either get in or stay in this industry that doesn't really want anything to do with them anymore. And the desperation and the lengths that they'll go to in order to somehow stay in there. Mm -hmm. It's sad. Yeah. (laughs) One line changes his whole monologue there. I found her at 16. I made her this, 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 and not in a waltz kind of way. She was the best actress I've ever seen. And I've worked with actresses all over the world. Yeah, She was the best. And then we fell in love. And, you know, and then the husband. So, like, you get this really incestuous, grooming, inappropriate relationship that he rose himself up on her haunches. Yeah. And now that she's become too weak to support his weight, what does that have left to do? And if she now then, after everything they've been through, willingly moved on from him and he's hanging on by a thread being her servant, he's either a husband, haha, that's a joke, or just doesn't matter anymore either. Yeah, yeah. And obviously he's not her husband and that was a joke kind mm-hmm. of, but um, he doesn't matter anymore either. Yeah. Yeah. And Joe wants to get into this industry. Mm-hmm. Again, you brought up earlier, yeah. Joe, there's the door, man. Yeah. It's time to run. Yeah. And do something else. Something, anything else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're real, with some real messed up people and they're, they're really stuck in their ways and can't see anything outside of that. Yeah. When he drops that line, you're just like, oh my God, like an ex-husband. Yeah. Just hanging out in the house, doing, doing her bidding. Mm. Because why the hell not? Because <laughs> he's not making pictures anymore. Yeah, exactly. So what else is he going to do? Right. Exactly. I mean, if you're not acting, if you're not directing, and that's your specialty, and you have no other trades to offer, I guess, yeah, just, just wellow in the past. Yikes. I mean, this this we're getting into some grim territory here. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Norma's getting a little keen on his little late-night trysts, right? So she starts calling Betty. And asking, like, saying, like, hey, who, who are you? And it's all, and trying to figure out what's going on here. And Joe catches her on the phone and picks, grabs the receiver from her and is like, Betty, if you want to know what the hell's going on here, just come on down the house. I'll, I'll tell you everything. Yeah. Uh, and she's already confessed to him, too. Like, everything's gotten complicated between us. We've gotten close. Jack Webb's asked me to, to marry him. He wants me to come out to Phoenix. Uh, but I don't know if I want to, and it's because of you. Uh, and so I was like, oh, God damn it. Like, this is a real predicament now because I really care about this person, but you're with a friend of mine, but you guys are all right together. We're not really, and I'm in this weird thing over here. How do we solve all this? Just come here. I'll confess. If it doesn't completely scare you, maybe we can move past this. Yeah. But no, no. She's, oh, no. <laughs> Betty's traumatized. Yes. 
Because doesn't Joe, this is also a little confusing, but like Joe's just like, I'm a gigolo? Like, it's like, is he pretending that was his cover or what? I think he's, yeah, that's his cover. Yes. Yeah. He's not really admitting no, no, that. He, he'd, he'd be the worst gigolo on the man. On, well, yeah. One he's, of he's trying to lie because he doesn't want to tell the truth of this weird situation. Mm-hmm. He's just like, well, I'm gigoloing and I'm, this is my clientele. Right. That's even worse. <laughs> yeah. He, he's kind of a terrible problem solver. Yeah. And that's what also works too is because Norma is so calculating and manipulative. She's able to really kind of string him along. Yeah. You wonder if when Joe comes that first time, if he doesn't recognize her by name, hey, you're Norma Desmond. You used to really be something. You used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small, that whole line, right? Mm-hmm. If he's just, oh, yeah, I'm Norma Desmond. Who the hell's Norma Desmond? Obviously, then we don't have a movie. But there's any number of lines that Joe could have said in there that save him. He picked literally the last line in the world that's going to do him any good. Yeah. And that's, oh, hey, you used to really, Norma Desmond? Yeah. Oh, my, look at you. Mm-hmm. And then that's just enough for some rando burglar in her house to mention her name to get the wheels rolling again. Yeah. God dang, man. I know. <laughs> it's just- Victim of circumstance? Sure, yeah. And Joe, like you said, I think he does at his core have a pretty good heart. Yeah. He doesn't want her to commit suicide, so I'm going to become her lover? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Meanwhile, it's just going to get weirder and weirder until we come to some sort of head, which is now (laughs) Betty, she takes off, right? She's just like, yeah, I'm I'm going to Phoenix. (laughs) 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 I'm out of here. This isn't going to work for me. So whatever happened to the screenplay, whoever, who who the hell knows what happened there? Dark Window never got out of the first draft. Yep. And he starts packing his bag and he's like, Norma, I'm out of here. I think he says something. I'm going to Ohio. I'm going to go back to my old newspaper job, which... God, that's a good idea. What about the studio? What about Demille? He was trying to spare your feelings. The studio only wanted to rent your car. Wanted what? Demille didn't have the heart to tell you. None of us has had the heart. That's a lie. They want me. I get letters every day. You tell her, Max. Come on, do her that favor. Tell her there isn't going to be any picture. There aren't any fan letters except the ones you write. That isn't true. Max! Madame is the greatest star of them all. I will take Mr. Gillis's bags to the car. You heard him? I'm a star. Norma, you're a woman of 50. Now grow up. There's nothing tragic about being 50. Not unless you try to be 25. Yeah. And so she's bought this gun, right? And oh. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm out of here. Instead of just like running out of this house, like I would be doing, like literally sprinting out. He's taking a nice gallivanting walk through the court. He's going to go through the courtyard by the pool. And I think Norma's had enough. Like if you think you're going to leave this, you're done. Bam. Boom. Three shots to the back. In the back. In the pool. Yeesh. In the back's a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think, yeah, I think 
we were we were heading to this. We were heading to some sort of violence between this. Something was gonna. It's like a pressure cooker, right? It's just like what's gonna blow first, and it was Norma's just temper. It was just like, well, you're not walking out on me. You're not gonna deny me for the second time now. Uh, in this way, I'd rather just see you dead. Yeah. So she kills him. We cut back to where the film started, right? And it was just like, well, that's how I ended up in the pool. <laughs> Fade to black. And then, uh, yeah, it's just like, so that that's how it all ended up for me. And we cut back to the house, and it's the press, right? And in almost a weird antithesis, the press are there, and she's getting the spotlight for all the wrong reasons, right? It's for murder. It's for lunacy. It's for being completely crazy. And it's not for your coming out party, your return to the spotlight. And she has no idea what's going on. All these people interviewing her, she's putting her makeup on. She's going to come down the stairs. There's photographers everywhere. There's cameras at the foot of the, the, the thing. And she thinks she's going to do a movie. Yeah. Comes down the stairs in this like weird phantasmagorical glide, almost ghastly, right? Gets down the foot of the stairs, and her director, husband, is essentially directing the scene. She thinks DeMille's off in the corner. He ain't nowhere near this place. And she's just going off on this, and I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, as she... Walks get, into the police cameras. Ghastly walks into the into the something. Sideways. <laughs> kind of like oh, shoulder yeah. sideways. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's just pretty horrific. Yeah. It's We've returned to horror again. Mm-hmm. It's And it's just, she thinks there's nothing wrong here. Yeah. She's going to prison <laughs> or um, an asylum. Yeah. She'd probably think it's a casting call. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. And then the movie ends. And then again, okay, so we talked last week. Good all, job, Billy. Get out. Yeah, You're done. Story's all, over. All about Eve ending. And I, I like the ending yeah. of All About Eve. I like how history is repeating itself with young youth again, right? Mm-hmm. These two stories are very similar when you really do think about them. Yeah. I really like how that film ended, and it's just the uh, Phoebe wearing the dress and the crown or, or and the trophy, right? Mm-hmm. And this film ends in such a grim, no bow tied on it type of way. Like, I don't know how Wilder was able to kind of get away with this ending, right? Mm-hmm. We almost needed a scene of, like, something a few months later, like, really kind of... Wrapping a bow around it. Electric chair for her. <laughs> no, you made it. No, it's too grim. But just something just to say evil. You could call her Joan of Arc role. Yeah, evil didn't get away. And this is what we're going to do the, for, you know, the rest of this. But no, we just end the movie right here. And I, I love it. I just, it's a great ending. He's good at that, Jesse. So mm-hmm. I told you earlier, I think for all the problems Hitchcock has from time to time, Wilder never had that with beginnings. He knew he, how to get out and say like I'm. There's no print. There's no pink bow. He, Sometimes there was. I don't think he has it with endings either. Look at some like it hot. Nobody perfect. Well, you're and even in the apartment. Yeah. Shut up and deal. Yeah. I don't know if they're together. Yeah. And the movie just ends. The story's over. Yeah. Make your way through the rest. I've given you some evidence, or maybe I haven't figured out. Well, where is she going to go? Mm-hmm. He's going to jail. Yeah. So what? What else do we need to see? Yeah. Exactly. I, I love that about him. Yeah. He's he doesn't have to. Yeah, sugarcoat everything. Laminate or, the poster for you. He's or just o- overly explain everything. It's just, you're just, the, yeah, you know what's happening. As, to him, because, yeah. That's not the way it is. Yeah, it's especially I'm, in 1950. Even today, we still drag on endings for 20 minutes, right? Let me ask you another question about yeah. him. Is he out of time? And by what by that, what I mean, is he out of time? Because if he's in that 
60, I even go like, let's go 57 to 70 instead of just about done. This is pretty close to the end for him. Here. Yeah. Is he better with what was acceptable in cinema, last picture show, French connection, like that raw, edgy counterculture on the silver screen thing we talked about? Is he better then or is he better where he is because he was, I think, an anomaly? What do you uh, think? I think he's better now uh, in the 50s, mm. 40s, 40s, 50s. I think the material's more rife for him a little bit later on, though? Uh, definitely. But I think he knows how to make these yeah. particular films that are compromised uh, with the Hayes Code, right? I mean... So they stand out more. Yeah, I think he found ways to do these things, to commit murders and sex scenes on screen without having to actually show them because the movie would, wouldn't get shown right if anybody out there's like who the hell is this billy wilder guy that they're talking about i don't not even shame on you but i would say before you go through anything that we've mentioned find yourself 98 minutes and sit down and watch the last weekend and then realize that that's a movie about the guy that wrote his most critically acclaimed argument there with the apartment film which would be double indemnity yeah that's a story about the writer that he worked with writing double indemnity yeah that's who it's written about Mm mm-hmm that scene on the wall with the bat and the mouse and the blood, fuck, man, yeah. what? Ray Milland at his absolute best. Yeah. But that's wilder. Mm-hmm. So material-wise, maybe a decade too early, but temperament-wise, I think just perfect right. because I think, he sticks I think out. Just right, yeah. I think he's 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 offering a little bit more to these ideas than I think other like because he's not Howard Hawks. Yeah, and he's not Capra or any of these William Wyler. I, right. I think he's he's he makes just very interesting movies that have dark themes in Edgy it. Drama. And they fit into the confines of the Hays Code, right? Yeah. I mean, it just it just somehow works for him. Uh we're not even, and then we're not even mentioning what I think is his undisputable masterpiece that he ever made, and that's Ace in the Hole with Kirk Douglas, yeah. talking about media and sensationalism. Like we got to do that film one of these days. I know. We 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 got enough to do a Wilder cask in the future with the apartment, some like it hot, and Ace in the Hole would be fantastic. Is so. he top five for you all time? Is he is for me all time, personally or? Yeah, personally. I, mean, I do love all those films. Yeah, he's top five. He may be five, but he's top five. He's up there with Hitchcock and John Carpenter for me. You know, the more we talk about Brian De Palmer, I mean, he sneaks up in there as well. Sands, uh, Black Dahlia, right? <laughs> yeah. But all the conversations we have about uh, De Palma, I'm like, I kind of like this guy's movies. So. so maybe so maybe five is too high because I think there's like four in there that could rotate in out, but maybe top eight. Then I got, I got my modern guys that I like, like, Nolan and Villeneuve, way, but yeah. oh, top top eight for sure, yeah. When of that classic era, I think Hitch is one. Wilder's two for me. Yeah, yeah. This is why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can't think of. Yeah, it's just it's a great ending. It's it's. I love that it's still noir too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, and I love that for the first time. At least in in just my estimation, it's just it's noir that's just like not in the weeds with some ridiculous scheme, right? It's like not some insurance scam, or we're not doing some botched heist or some ridiculous thing that just gets everyone killed, right? Right. No, it's just this woman just thinks she's still an actress and she's not relevant anymore. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> we're not Simple. trying to scam her out of her fortunes, right? Right. There's none of Kill that. Kill her husband. Oh right. yeah, I, yeah, yeah. No, we're not assassinating anybody. No, it's a very <laughs> simple story at the end of the day. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, Delivered and, expertly well by everybody in it. Not a bad performance <clears throat> among them. So obviously, compared to last week, uh, All About Eve took home Best Picture and the six Oscars. 
This film uh, did was nominated for 11, so uh, pretty decent uh, amount. Uh, let me get you the actual ones it won for. Uh, best uh, score. Mm. Uh, music, pretty good. Art direction for black and white. And best story and screenplay. Matt, this is pretty interesting. Uh, all this Academy Awards talk is making me discover a lot about the actual ceremony. So before... I'll have to see the years on this, but they used to offer these three awards. So there used to be an award for best screenplay, which was best screenplay back then was based on other material, right? So a book, a book, a newspaper article or adapted, right? And then there was best story and screenplay. So that was an an original idea. So that's where Sunset Boulevard found it. Then there was a, a third award for best motion picture story. Oh, and this was uh, it was given until 1956, and uh, it most closely resembles the usage of modern film treatments or prose documents that describe the entire plot characters, but typically lack most of the dialogue. So I guess just an out the outline of the story. Yeah, we're getting nominated for things. I had never heard wow, of, best ne- outline. Yeah, never heard of that before. And so they, they stopped doing it six years after this film, but... Good, because that third category is ridiculous. Yeah, and so yeah, you're getting three uh, three awards for s- screenplays in various different formats. Mm, interesting. And up until 1937, I think, from 27 to 37, they were given awards for Best Assistant Director. <laughs> it was just crazy. Best Boom Boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Almost, right? Uh, but this film, I mean, look it up on any of the lists. I think it was on AFI's, I think it was number 12 in its 98 list and then number 16 in the 20, 2008 list. Where's Eve in comparison? I think Eve's floating around the 20s. I, this is higher. This is higher. Yeah. And both lines made uh, the pitchers, uh, or, uh, uh, the pitchers got, uh, I'm the one who's big or whatever. And um, I'm ready for my close-up. They both made the AFI, I think, top 25 quotes of all time. Sure. Just legend. I mean, you hear that and you're like, that's, that's coming from something. Like, you, everyone knows those lines, uh, right? I mean, they might not know the film, but they've heard those before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that's Sunset Boulevard. What's your favorite tasting note, your favorite scene of this film? There's a lot, but I think I'd mistake with what I said earlier, and it's that opening. Guy floating face down, but to us, face up in the pool. And that great voiceover that says, let me tell you how this shit happened, because it's a crazy story. Mm-hmm. Love it. I love it. Buckle up. Great choice. I think I'm going to pick the touring of Paramount uh, Pictures uh, and Cecil B. Miller trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Her in the spotlight, learning about how Von Stroheim used to work here and then forming that new partnership. There's just so much going on in this, what what would you say, that 15 minutes? Mm -hmm. It's a long sequence, but man, we're laying the groundwork for a lot of crazy things here. Man, it's it's just awkward the entire time. Yeah. (laughs) What's your... Oh my God! moment of sunset boulevard turn between the monkey or the fact that they consummate the relationship (laughs) i'll go with the monkey the monkey is ghastly monkey's pretty weird dressed up like a baby you think it was real yeah i i don't know i just sure why really they put they put a stuffed monkey in there Either way, it looks horrific. It's yeah. just like when they pull that bail, it's just like, it's, yeah, it's first you're it. like, oh man, that's a real hairy arm that just dropped there. And you're like, oh wait, this is this is an animal. And then they they both in the dark in her funeral attire go and bury it in the backyard. Eesh. There's nothing in California code about me burying this monkey in the backyard, is there? With what else? Yeah, who else? 
Yeah. Whom else? Yeah. Uh, mine, mine is her gruesome repairs uh, montage, uh, beauty montage. <laughs> repairs. Yeah, it was just, I, I. it may as well have just been set in a hospital. It was just, it, there was no, it, there was nothing beautiful or beautification about what they were doing. It was all very procedural yeah. and kind of gross. Yeah, <laughs> yeah kind of. I don't want to, if, if the mat, if I got to put that sack on my head that has a gas mask tube to whatever machine and that's going to suck all the wrinkles out of my face. Ugh. Yeah, give me a wrinkle, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who's the master distiller on? Sunset Boulevard. Oh, gosh. A lot to choose from here. Uh, I would say of the possible four, for me, Holden's probably fourth. I don't know how you can't go with Swanson. Um, you, I mean, you could easily go with Stroheim or Wilder. I'm going to go with Swanson just because she's so ghastly and so inspired by Renfield and so horrific in a noir and so brave. Yeah to show herself in that light, which was a light that kind of kicked her out of the spot mm -hmm. not too long ago. Yeah. Spotlight spot. I got to pick her too. Yeah. I thought it was a great, great performance. And I, I think I was more shocked when I realized she didn't win. And yeah. last week's didn't win either. Who the hell won? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, it's so frightening watching her just with such authenticity try to explain her relevance to everybody because she believes it and no one else does, not even her ex. Mm -hmm. And up until the end, and she and she just still doesn't get it. I mean, there's no point in this movie where someone other than William Holden, and he pays with three bullets in the back, no one ever tells her the truth right to her face. And even that wasn't enough to sway her to realism. And she still just... Goes on. I'm. We're making a movie here in my house now. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. The the shalom. Here here it is. It's the close up. Let's go, Demille. Great performance. It's just. It's all in the eyes. It's in that pantameter. Uh, really good. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen another film with her in it because I haven't seen a lot of their silent film offerings. But yeah, she's great. Mm -hmm. And I, this was kind of it for her too. Like there was no post Sunset Boulevard boom for Gloria Swanson. It was. Good yeah, job. See ya. This was kind of it. Yeah. So good way to go out sure. to her going out like that. Yeah, I think so. How are you going to rate and grade Sunset Boulevard? We have Rock Cut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Where are you going? Top Shelf. It's 15 best of all time for me. Uh, was turned on this film by a friend of mine, ooh, 25, 30 years ago, maybe. Yeah, probably 25. Um, my first watch, the reason I asked you is my first watch. I sat there for a minute like, what in the world did I just see? <laughs> And then trying to quantify it as noir and whatever I was going process I was going through and sort of struggling even with that, even though it is noir. And then the more you watch it, the more you begin to appreciate just how unique, mm -hmm. uncomfortable, but yet comfortable Swanson is in being that uncomfortable to watch on screen. It's her picture, even though Holden's a huge part, Stroheim is very capable with his overindulgent desire to keep her relevant through his own ego and what sacrifices he makes through his own ego. Cause he's sort of being made over in kind of a horrific way. Also, if you're reduced to writing your fan letters for what used to be yeah, what's left, it's just, it's a really, really memorable watch. And I just have to salute Wilder for having the balls to want to make this spec story. Oh yeah. I don't know how this got greenlit. Mm -hmm. I don't know how this got greenlit in 1950. Don't we need another big flashy musical MGM? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it did. Exactly, yeah. 
Who? Uh, I know this isn't MGM, but you know what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. It's Paramount, right? Yeah. Yeah. Single barrel plus plus for me. Mm, just missed. Yeah, not quite top shelf, but uh, a damn good movie. Uh, great noir. Uh, just reminded me how much I really like Billy Wilder and his films. I think I still prefer Double Indemnity to this one uh, and a few other. So in my rankings of the Billy Wilder, this might be like four or five, which that's no knock against the film or the man. I mean, he just has a really great top filmography, right? Is that why it's plus, plus, plus? Because you can't have six Billy Wilder films on your top shelf yeah, category? Probably, no, I mean, I mean it really. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. So I get that. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think I think so. But highly entertaining, absolutely ghastly, great performances, great direction. It's a great, it's a good, because I, I, I really don't like movies about Hollywood and because it's almost like they're like tipping their hat to themselves. But when it's done like this and it's like, yeah, tipping your hat to like this. With your middle finger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm kind of on board with that. So uh, yeah, re- this is a great rewatch. I, if you haven't seen it out there, you, you got to check off Sunset Boulevard on your watch list because it's, it's a must for any fan of cinema. A little hard to find, like Jesse said, but. This is one that even if you couldn't rent it and you just had to purchase it. Oh, good purchase. It'd be a good purchase. Yeah, good blind buy. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Let's wrap this up with our nightcap. Or cheers to your rating. Cheers to your rating. What are we thinking here? Okay, nightcap time. Who scores that? Franz Waxman? Yeah. Yeah. So he took home the gold. <laughs> he sure did. There you go. Okay, so the nightcap is, I guess, a tribute to Von Stroheim. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great performances by directors in film. So three? Yeah. I think I said three. Yep. So you're going to go three, three, two, two, one, one? Yeah. Okay, I'll go first. Go ahead. Uh, I'm going with um, Mr. Sidney Pollock and Eyes Wide Shut. That's a troubling film, and I, I do hope someday to do that on here for a well, lot of different reasons. Well, we almost did it. We almost if did not it. for being sick, we yeah. would have done it. Which is also troubling. Yes. <laughs> um, he's really good in that. He I, is. I haven't watched Eyes Wide Shut in totality in some time, but I was playing around with it before we were not able to do it, and yeah. it'll come back again, I'm sure, at some point. Maybe a Kidman cask. Yeah. That way we could do Malice. And to die for. To die for. Uh, he's good in that. Yeah. I, I, I just, that's all I can say. He's he's good in it. It's good because it's also my number three, Matt. Uh, oh, we have the same one? Uh, no, and like, I just want to echo what you said. I think he's in maybe two or three scenes of that film. He's yeah. not in all of it. Yeah. Uh, but the scenes he is in are very troubling. Like the opening scene with him is at this party where he decides to skip out on his wife, goes upstairs to the bathroom, gets a sex worker, drugs her up, and then almost dies. And mm-hmm. he has to bring Tom Cruise, can you come see what's wrong with her? And it's yeah. just like, dude, what are you doing up there? Yeah. And he's just like, it's, it, he's got the suspenders on with no shirt. I mean, that's... Senator kind of, Geary. Yeah. And he uh, he's the one that breaks it to Tom Cruise about, we knew you were at the orgy the other night. You You can't tell anybody what you saw. And you can't you can't come back. Uh, you weren't supposed to be there, mm. and it becomes very sinister in the intentions. Yeah, he's so good in that movie. Yeah, Pollock's <laughs> good. Excellent. What's your number two? 
Um, John Houston in Chinatown. Uh, that's a troubling career in Hollywood if you get into the, some of the things that he was involved with. But man, he's really fucking good in that film. Yeah. Uh, that's actually a very talented acting family from Angelica mm-hmm. to Walter. Yeah. But he's really, really good in this as, again, noir showing up. I think he steals the film from Nicholson, and that's doing something. Mostly because you find out the terrible thing that he's done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the reason that that deed that he's done, I'm not going to tell anybody if you haven't seen it because it's it's one of the 10 biggest sh- shockers in all of Hollywood. Would you ever like to do that film one day? I'd love it, yeah. yeah. He's so wooden the whole time. Mm-hmm. So wooden and cold and kind of just or sort of above the fray bullshit of Jake Giddes the whole time. And then you kind of find out he's the crux of it. And water. It's a great choice. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I thought about Mr. John Houston, but in a way, uh, recently I rewatched the animated Hobbit film. Mm. It's okay. Uh, but he is the voice of Gandalf in there, and John Houston really? pipes as Gandalf huh. is actually pretty great. So huh. um, more vocal performance than physical, but it got me thinking of John Houston there. I mean, he was part of that whole cohort. The five came back, right, of the mm-hmm. directors that went and shot all that war footage and came back just totally different, right? Yep. Him, Wilder, uh, Capra. Uh, I can't remember the other two right now, but... Yeah. Hawks, uh, I think. Uh, oh, yeah, John Ford and... Who's the last one? Is it Hawks? Howard Hawks? Mm-mm. I'll look it up. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. I have that book. Great book, great. And Netflix a great did a documentary on it, too. Also, also really good. My number two... Okay, this is the Jesse film recommendation of the week. Mm. Uh, number two is director Samuel Fuller, who made a lot of like, you know, kind of B indie films, counterculture films like Shot Corridor and, uh, oh man, what's, what's that other one? He, he made a film called White Dog. I mean, he made a lot of really strange films, but he plays a Nazi hunter who becomes a Nazi vampire hunter in Larry Cohen's A Return to Salem's Lot. And... This film isn't great. It's it's not a good movie. But I rewatched it recently and the minute Samuel Fuller enters the fray, it's it's a totally different film. He is cuckoo bananas and you're just uproariously laughing at everything this man's doing. It's 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 a comedic adventurous performance as a vampire hunter. Love have you, that. Have you ever seen Return to Lot? I don't think so. It has nothing to do with the book or the Toby Hooper miniseries other than the name of the town and vampires. Mm. It's a different beast altogether, and it it I had seen it before, and I didn't like it, and so I, I, I went back to it, and I was like, this is actually fairly enjoyable. Yeah. So check it out. He He's great, and you will, you'll know who I'm talking about when you're watching it. Yeah. So. All right, good. Yeah, that's my number two. Good choice. Number, number one, one, yeah. Orson Welles is Charles Foster Kane. Yeah. I don't know how it couldn't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a checkered career later on, having a lot to do with ego. And as for as much as we bang on Mank almost weekly, I do hope that somebody gives that story of Wells a legitimate go and tells the story of the mm. rise and fall because so much of his career did mirror Charles Foster Kane's. Like the trouble that that movie got into it almost did get made because William Randolph Hearst almost shit canned it a few times. Problems he had with women and what he has with the problems with it. Like... Rosebud, man. Yeah. Um, he's good in several films. Mm-hmm. He's really, really good, particularly in this one. Yeah, because he plays... He's really good in the third man, too. Several different ages of Charles Foster Kane, yeah. but, like, that's, like... 
it's the whole vehicle, right? It's the directing, it's the performance. It's he's so ingrained in that film. When you get rags to riches, you usually get rags to riches and glorifying that. You rarely get rags to riches and then shitting on it. Yeah. Um, and that's what that film's good at. I don't mm. think that's the greatest film of all time, like it appears in a lot of lists. I don't even know if that'd make my top twenty of all time. No, I don't, but I don't even know if it top fifty. I don't know. I probably wouldn't make my, but I can absolutely respect. Yeah, everything that it do, it did, and he's fantastic. It's shot beautifully well. So to be behind the camera and on screen at the same time, got to give the man credit. Awesome, he was a creative dude. Great choice. Thank I'm you. Not gonna double down on that one because you know one of us had to pick it, right? Sure. I mean, it's probably the best you know version of that. Um, but I'm actually gonna pick the man that was in this movie today, Eric von Stroheim, in another film, a French film from John uh, Renoir. Uh, the Grand Illusion. Yeah, it's a great little World War One, you know, prisoner of war film, kind of an anti-war film at the end of the day. Uh, but he plays uh, kind of like the general of this like prison camp, and he has like this weird, strange neck brace. And the reason I saw it, I've seen it several times, but it's spine number one on the Criterion Collection. So oh. the very first film they decided to place in this thing, it's number one. So huh. give it a watch. He's he's great in it. And I think I think he's doing German the the whole time. And I think he's throwing some French in there. So the guy was he knew several languages. As good as he was as a director, he's a better actor. Yeah. Yeah. Saying something. Mm-hmm. So good yeah. choice. Yeah. Check, check, check that one out. A lot a lot of lot of recommendations of some films uh, to check out. Yeah. Go pop on eyes eyes wide shut <laughs> you're at it too. Put that one on. Uh Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, that's a capper on 1950. Uh, I think we're both in agreement. Sunset Boulevard probably should have walked home with the gold, right? Yes. Um, I, and I will say, to All About Eve's credit, I did enjoy it more the second time. Uh, and I can kind of see where it's coming with a lot of stuff. But this film is just this film is just no bullshit. It's Head just, shoulder it's just right there. It's darker. It's more. It cuts its teeth a little bit harder. Um, it's a little more honest. It's a little less uh, sugar coating. Yeah, less I think, afraid, afraid think the performances are good. Yeah, and that's right. Again, uh, for going with all about Eve is the safe choice, this is definitely not the safe choice. So I understand why it didn't win, but it should have won. Should have won. Should have won. We agree. All right. Let's so before get- we get into this, okay, <laughs> do you want to just tease out the year, or do you want to? Well, I mean, once we give the year, we'll know what the best picture winner was. Eh, nah, never. Mind. Eh, let's just do it. Okay. Okay, so let's get in our time machine. And the year 1980. And the year of the Empire Strikes Back. Out of Africa. There you go. <laughs> no. Just kidding. It's yeah. 81 or something. Uh, uh, yeah, Empire Strikes Back, you know, this great film year. We're going to start a, a kind of a great, you know, decade of, of films here. Blockbusters and cerebral dramas. So here we are, year 80. And you get a, the best picture winner that year. Next week's film, Ordinary People. Okay. I don't think you and I have ever done a film like this on the podcast before, which mm-hmm. is just like what I quantify as just family drama. Yeah. <laughs> Other than like The Godfather, but that's a mob movie. Right. This is just a drama, drama, drama. Yeah. Directed by one of the great actors of all time, Robert Redford. Redford. And directorial debut, yes. Yep. Yeah. And starring some people you might know, Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Timothy Hutton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, this was the popular f- award-winning film that year. Uh, when's the last time you've seen this thing? I don't even, I couldn't tell you. Yeah? 
it's going to be, yeah, um, this might as well be a brand new watch. It's been so long. Okay. I think I watched this last year, actually. So <laughs> um, it's a little fresher in my head. Um, but once we kind of tease out what it beat, we might have some more uh, things to talk about, right? Yeah, and I love that you said, you know, you, you forecasted what a great decade the 80s were. Mm-hmm. What I would say is, I agree, in some genres, mm-hmm. some struggled, but it's like that's every decade. Yeah. The Oscar winners in this year, this decade, yeah. are pretty much shit. Yeah. I, we've talked about that a lot off mic. Um, there's a couple in there I could make a case for. It's not going to be, I'm not ch- saying anything this, that, or the other way. But, man, that's a weak, weak, weak decade of winners. Well, I'll tell you, and then it's something, again, we've switched our tune on this very shockingly. 1982, the best picture winner that year, Gandhi. Uh, it's just like epic <laughs> snooze fest, right? Yep. Give it to E.T. I don't even care. I'm with you. Yeah, let's do it. Yes. Let's do it. Yes. 81, Chariots of Fire, I think, is the winner. Oh, my Christ. Come on, give it to Raiders, man. Not even close. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, you keep going. You got out of Africa in there. You have like the last emperor. Kramer. Kramer. Uh, driving Mrs. Daisy. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. Uh, Rain Man. Platoon. Yeah. It's an interesting decade for the <laughs> the best picture winners. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit about that in the 1980s. But yeah, ordinary people. Like you and me. Get ready for a depressing film, everybody. <laughs> Not like you and me. <laughs> exactly. Cheers to you. So cheers to you. Uh, cheers. I got to get going. Um, I got to go get ready for my close-up, but I'm just going to take a selfie with my phone. (laughs) Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Sunset Boulevard is property of Paramount Pictures and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. <laughs>